you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. The major portion of this great book is prophecy. It maps out God's design for the future. And in fact, from chapter 4 through to the end of the book, we have the description of things to come. Those chapters can be separated into three primary divisions, the tribulation, the millennium, and the eternal state. The tribulation is contained in chapters 4 to 19, and that's the seven-year period when God will purge the earth. The millennium is contained in chapter 20, and that is the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. And then the eternal state we see in chapters 21 and 22 when God establishes an altogether new order for eternity. And the question that we come to this morning is, what will that be like? What will eternity be like? Chapter 20 closed with the great white throne judgment. And so at this point in time, the final grave will have been emptied. The final rebellion of man will have been crushed. The final assault of Satan will have been smashed. Sinful men will have received their ultimate judgment. Satan will have been permanently silenced in the lake of fire. Death will be ended. The books will be closed. Sin will be gone. And you say, well, what's next? We found about, out about the eternal home of unbelievers in chapter 20, the lake of fire. And now we want to know about the eternal home of those who are the children of God. And that is the topic in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 5. And it's clear from the outset that we're dealing with eternity. Look at verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the Genesis 1-1 of the future. This is the Genesis 1-1 of eternity, a new beginning. There we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And now we read, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now there are two primary words for new in the Greek language. One is neos, which means new in time, and the other is kainos, which means new in quality. This is the word kainos, new in quality and thus different from the old. What's interesting is it's the same word used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 where Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, new in quality. We are, you are a kainos creature, and you need a kainos creation. And so he has made me a new in quality creature. In the eternal state, he's going to make a new in quality creation for me to live in. A new heaven and a new earth. Peter looked toward this day in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13 when he said, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so the feature of the eternal state is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. 
You say, well, what's going to happen to this heaven and this earth? Well, look at verse 1 again. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. They're going to pass away. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24, 35. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This heaven and this earth is going to pass away. Now, don't get confused by that language because to pass away is kind of a terminology that we use. Uh, we use that of, of uh, loved ones who die. We say they passed away. It's sort of a calming, tranquil kind of statement that they passed away. Well, when we read this in verse 1, this is anything but calm and anything but tranquil. In fact, Peter spells it out for us in 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you just want to flip over there, you'll see sort of the expansion of what it means when it says the heaven and earth will pass away. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. <clears throat> but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The present heavens and earth have a reservation for fire. Verse 10 details it even more. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. There's going to be a great roar as the heavens pass away. The elements are going to be destroyed with intense heat. The earth is going to be burned up with fire. That's the future for this earth. This earth is destined to be burned up. Now, that's the reason why I don't get overly alarmed about global warming and uh, the ozone layer, and I rarely lose sleep over styrofoam or disposable diapers. Uh, in fact, you probably won't find me at any Earth Day rallies chanting, Save the Earth. Because that's not really my goal. My goal is the promise of God for a new earth. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't give me the license to be irresponsible with the way I use this earth. In fact, I think of all people, Christians ought to be probably most caring for this, this earth because this earth declares the glory of God. But we also need to keep in perspective the fact that this earth is reserved for fire. The first earth is going to be destroyed by fire and it's going to be replaced by a new earth. Whenever I see one of those t-shirts that says, um, save this earth, it's the only one we've got, I always say, bad theology. You know, we're, we're going to get another earth, a new earth. This one's going, it's passing, it's fading, it's decaying now, it's going to be consumed with fire and God is going to replace it with an all new earth. You say, you mean it's going to be burned up? How do you burn dirt? Well, read Einstein and uh, you'll understand. Well, you may not understand, 
But Einstein, basically, his theory was uh, E equals MC squared. And, and what that means is basically that energy can be, transform, for, can be transferred to matter, and matter can be transferred to energy. Uh, do some studying about uh, nuclear fission. Nuclear fission is basically when, when the nuclei of atoms is split, and when the nuclei of, of uh, for instance, plutonium is split, it becomes what? An atomic bomb. And it just dissolves into energy, or it doesn't dissolve, it explodes into energy. Nuclear fission. What's dirt made of? Atoms. So the feasibility is there. Man doesn't know how to take dirt and turn it into energy. If he did, we'd be in great shape. And just come out to my place and you can fill up this afternoon. But the feasibility is there, and we understand that. Uh, but you know, you don't have to be an Einstein to really realize that this is possible. You know, we, we uh, live on an earth that is 25,000 miles in circumference. It's 8,000 miles in diameter, and it's not solid. In fact, we live on the only solid part, and scientists call it the crust. It makes you worry a little bit. You know what's in the middle? A sea of molten fire. And every once in a while it gets too close to the crust and it explodes in what we call a volcano. And people stand around and say, well, dirt won't burn. You know, you can't, what's this mean? The, the earth's going to be burned up with fire. Well, just think about it. I mean, we're sitting on a, on a bomb. It's just waiting to explode into fire. It's already, most of it's already burning. And we're standing here uh, reading that one day God's just going to turn it all into fire and he's going to consume this earth. But you know, not only is that the fate of the earth, but it's the fate of heaven. Heavens are going to pass away as well. And you say, well, does that mean everything? I mean, all the heavens are going to be destroyed? Well, you know, in Scripture, it's interesting because there are certain categories of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talked about being caught up to the third heaven. It makes you wonder. If he was taken to the third heaven, which he called paradise, which is apparently the dwelling place of God, then what are the first two heavens? Well, the assumption is that the second heaven, therefore, is the stellar heaven where the stars and the galaxies are, and the first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. So the first heaven would be our atmosphere, the second heaven would be the starry galaxies, the universe as we know it, and the third heaven would be paradise where God dwells, which is beyond that apparently. Now what's he talking about here? Well, he's obviously talking about our atmosphere, and it's quite likely that he's also talking about the stellar heavens as well. Because if you read about the tribulation, you'll find that the the stellar heavens are pretty much in disarray after the tribulation period. In Matthew 24 and verse 29, we're told that the moon and the sun will be darkened and the stars will fall from heaven. And in Revelation chapter 6, it describes the sixth uh, seal and it says that this universe is going to be like a fig tree that's shaken and all the figs are going to fall and the stars are going to fall to the earth. And so it'll be in great disarray and God is going to uh, after the end of the millennium, destroy it and create a new heaven 
and a new earth. You say, well, why would God destroy the heavens? Well, I don't know if I have a complete answer to that, but you know, the heavens are the place where Satan has sort of had his domain. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 calls him the prince of the power of the what? Of the air. And uh, it seems to me that God is going to have to destroy everything that Satan and his angels and man and fallen man have polluted. And so he goes in and he replaces it all. New heavens and new earth. So heaven and earth will pass away and John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And then he notes one major difference in this new earth at the end of verse 1. He says, and there is no longer any sea. John sees the new earth, and the first thing he says is, there's no sea. Now, the most prominent feature about our earth is the sea. In fact, water makes up 70% of the earth's surface. So, in the new earth, it's going to be quite noticeably absent. No sea. And I think that was especially true for John, because John is writing from the Isle of Patmos, he has been banished there. The Isle of Patmos is 20 miles in circumference, and it's surrounded by the sea. And I just kind of imagine that, that many an afternoon, John went out and sat on the seashore and sort of longed to be able to go across to Ephesus, which was about 70 miles away, and fellowship with the Christians there, but he couldn't go there because of the sea. He was exiled there. It was a place where they banished prisons or, or prisoners, and the, the sea really represented his prison bars. And so it's interesting, when John sees the new earth, the first thing he notices is there's no sea. You know, John was sick of the sea. He sat there, he saw it every day. There it was. It was the thing holding him there on the island. And then he sees the new earth, and he says, there's no sea on the new earth. That's a relief. You say, why won't there be any sea? Well, obviously, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why there is a sea on this earth. But I can make maybe a suggestion. You know, the sea sort of presents divisions among people. It sort of divides the earth up into sections of land, and it really sort of divides man from man, the sea. But in the new earth, there won't be a sea because there'll be no separation in the new earth. And there won't be any sea in the new earth for maybe another reason, and that is because we won't need any water. And the only mention of water in the new earth is down in chapter 22 and verse 1, and it says, He showed me the river of the water of life. There'll be one river, and that'll be the river of the water of life. We won't need water. And then maybe John points this out, that there's no sea to sort of impress us with the fact that this is not just a renovation job. God just isn't going to go in and patch up the first earth. He's going to create an altogether new earth. And John points out there's no sea there. And so we're reminded that this is something altogether new that God is creating for us. And then there's something else new that catches John's eye, and that's in verse 2. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The present Jerusalem will be destroyed with this first earth, and God is going to 
bring in a new Jerusalem. And it's this new Jerusalem that captures John's attention for the rest of this passage. And we're going to discover along with John six things or six features about this city. We're going to find out its origin, its inhabitants, its brilliance, its design, its uniqueness, and its attractions. And we won't get to all of that today, but it'll take us two weeks. But we'll cover these aspects of this city which John sees come down in verse 2. First thing we're going to discover is its origin. And uh, we find out about its origin in verse 2. What is its origin? Where does this city come from? Well, John says, I saw it coming down out of heaven from God. Now, the impression I get from verse 1 is that the new heavens and the new earth are created at this point in time. God destroys the old earth with fire, destroys the old heavens, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But I don't get that impression from verse 2. I don't get the impression that he's just now creating this new Jerusalem. The impression is that it comes down out of heaven from God. It's coming down from God out of heaven. It's already been around as it comes down, you see. You say, well, where's, where's it been? Well, it's been in heaven. What is it? Well, you know, I think it's been around for almost 2,000 years. At least it's been in the works that long. And I think it's the fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 14, too. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's been gone almost 2,000 years. He's been working on this thing. And when it's complete, it's going to come down and be the place where we're going to dwell with him. It's sort of the picture. It's, it's a picture taken really from Jewish custom. Because in Jewish custom, uh, when a young man proposed to a young lady and she accepted, his responsibility was to go and build a house for them to live in. And so he would come to his father and say, I asked Annie to marry me, and she said yes. And the father would say, well, all right, you're not living here. You know, go build a house. So he would go build a house, and he would build, and he'd come back and tell his dad, he'd say, I'm finished, and his dad would come out and look at it and say, that's not a house. You keep working at it. Until he built a house that was acceptable, and his father would inspect it, and then his father would say, all right, that's good enough. It's time for the wedding. And then he would go and he would, they would have the wedding and he would bring his bride back to live in that house. That's really the picture we have of Christ. He came the first time to propose to us. Uh, he hung on the cross to provide uh, the payment and he called us to himself. And then he's gone back to prepare a place for us. And the father sort of looks on and when the father thinks it's ready, you see Jesus said he doesn't even know the time he's coming. Father's looking on, and when he's ready, the, the father's going to say it's time, and he's going to come and get his bride and take his bride back to be with himself, and that's going to be the dwelling place for eternity. And that's why I think he calls it here, uh, he says it's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's all decked out in bridal attire as this city comes down. And there's sort of a correlation here between the city and the people because the city, actually a little later, he says, I'm going to go see the bride, and he, and he sees the bride, and it's really the city. So there's this, this correlation between the bride and the city. The people really reflect what the city is, 
Uh, it's their character associated with the city. And of course, if, if you remember our study in Revelation, it's really a contrast with Babylon because Babylon was called the harlot. And here Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, is referred to as the bride of Christ. Babylon, that, that city uh, where the unfaithful dwelt, and here's the city where the faithful dwelt. Babylon, the, the, the city where the untrue lived, and here's the city where the true believers live, and that's why he calls it, I think, the holy city. It's New Jerusalem, this holy city coming out of heaven from God, and of course that's also in contrast to the old Jerusalem, which back in chapter 11 and verse 8 was referred to mystically as Sodom and Egypt. It was involved in sin, and so it was referred to as Sodom because that was the character of it and is the character of it in this earth. But this new Jerusalem comes decked out in bridal attire and holy, coming down from God. That's its origin. And then secondly, we want to look at its inhabitants. Who inhabits the city? Notice verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall dwell among them. Now a voice comes from the throne and says essentially the same thing four ways. It's kind of like this is so inconceivable that I'm going to say it as many ways as I can say it. And so he says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. The word tabernacle means tent. And it's the expression used throughout the Old Testament of, of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's used of a guy pitching his tent. And so what he's saying is God is going to pitch his tent with men. And then he says, and he shall dwell among them. And that's the same word again. He will tabernacle among them. He's saying the same thing. He's going to be here dwelling among men. And they shall be his peoples. And then he says, and God himself shall be among them. You know, we assume we're going to spend eternity in heaven. But that's not really accurate theology. Because we're going to spend eternity on earth, in the new Jerusalem, only it won't really be earth, because it'll be a new earth, and it will actually be heaven because God's going to be here. Because if you wanted to find heaven, heaven is where God is. And so God's going to move his place of dwelling out of the third heaven, and he's going to move it right down to the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And that's where he's going to make up and, and, and set up his throne over the universe. And we're going to dwell there with him. That's exciting stuff. You say, well, who's actually going to be in this city. Let, let me throw this in. I, I also plan to do some exploring around the universe. And we're going to be we're going to be living in the New Jerusalem, but I think we're going to have the freedom to do some exploring. But the real excitement of the eternal state is going to be the presence of God, and He's going to be in the New Jerusalem, dwelling with man. Now, who's going to be there with Him? Well, you know, there are a lot of writers who say that this is going to be the home of the church, and they try to argue that this is the church only that's in the New Jerusalem. But I, I have problems with that. Uh, in fact, take your Bible and look at Hebrews chapter 11.
Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10. It's talking about Abraham. It says, For he was looking for what? The city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham refused to set his roots too deep in this earth because he was looking for God's city. Now, is Abraham in the church? No. But he's looking for the city. That's his goal. Look at verse 16. It says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Who's them? He's talking about the Old Testament saints when he's talking about them. They're going to be in the city. That's the city they're looking for. God has prepared it for them. Turn over to chapter 12 of Hebrews and verse 22. Here he's contrasting Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. And he says, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There it is. Who's in it? He says, And to myriads of angels, the angels are going to be there, and to the general assembly, who's that? I don't know. And the church of the firstborn, that's us, enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Who's that? I don't know. So you got the church, you got the general assembly, and you got these righteous men made holy. They must be the Old Testament saints, Israel, the tribulation saints. All I can assume is this is everybody. The church is there, yes, but there are others there as well. There are these righteous men made holy. There's this general assembly that he talks about. And so the New Jerusalem is going to be the home definitely of the Old Testament saints as Abraham was looking for that city. It's going to be the home of the church, which may be the reason why the bride is adorned as a bride is emphasized, but it's going to be the home of all true saints of all ages. In fact, if you look in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, you'll find a picture there of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, which is the New Jerusalem, with 144,000 witnesses from Israel. They'll be there as well. And so it's all saints from all ages who are going to be in this new Jerusalem. And next week we'll realize how large this new Jerusalem is and you'll understand how they all are going to fit there. So the new Jerusalem will be inhabited by God and his people from all ages. So God will be here. He will be dwelling among us in this new city, the new Jerusalem. You say, well, what's it going to be like living with God. Well, you know, it's kind of like living with anybody. There's going to be negatives and there's going to be positives. And some of these are pointed out. First, the negatives. Notice verse 4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. There'll be no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. This is your last chance to participate in those things, uh, if you enjoy those. Because those will not exist in the New Jerusalem. God's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to take away every cause for tears. There'll be no death. What happened to death? Chapter 20 and verse 14 says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
Can you imagine that? No death. We live with death. It's a constant. Uh, we're always confronted with death. In eternity, there'll be no death. We will live forever with no death. And then he says immediately after, there's no mourning. Of course, that's the emotion that goes with death. And that's, uh, for the Christian, the, the most painful part of death is the loss of a loved one that you have to mourn over. The loved one goes to be with the Lord. But the, the sorrow is there. And he says there'll be no mourning, no sadness. And then he says there's no crying. And that's the emotion with, that goes with pain. And then he mentions no pain. There'll be no crying because there'll be no reason to cry. There'll be no pain, no disease, no decay, no injury, no breaks, no scrapes, no pain. Hard to imagine because we live with it constantly in our world. One of Lindsay's first words she learned was hurt. And she would come up to you and say, Daddy, hurt. Well, that won't be a word in our vocabulary in eternity because there'll be no pain because God's going to take away all the causes for crying and mourning. He's going to take away all pain and all death. Those are the negatives of living with God. And then the positives, verses 5 to 7. Notice verse 5, and he says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. Now, the one who sits on the throne here may be God, and it may be the Lamb. If you look at chapter 22 and verse 3, it says, And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And so we've got God on the throne, and we've got the Lamb on the throne. So when it talks about the one speaking from the throne, we can take this either way. But he says, I'm making all things new. And this really describes the completion of redemption. God is doing, on this occasion, tangibly what he has already done for us spiritually. 2 Corinthians 5.17 that I quoted earlier says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's happened in my life spiritually and hopefully, tangibly, as I put aside things and put on the new man and walk in the Spirit of God. But on this occasion, it's going to happen in all creation. Notice the end of verse 4. He says, the first things have passed away. He puts away the old things. Verse 5, behold, I'm making all things new. God does it tangibly throughout the universe to all things. He puts away the first things and he brings all things in new. And he says to John, behold, that word means look. John, look, I've made everything new. And apparently John looks and he's just sort of awestruck by it all. And he's looking and he's looking. And what you find here is in the middle of verse 5, and he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. And I can only assume that John is just sort of looking at all the new things and he's forgot he's supposed to be uh, the secretary here. He's supposed to be writing down and cataloging what he's seen. And so God says, I want you to write, for these are faithful and true. And then verse 6 says, And he said to me, It is done. That's a great statement. It is done. What's done? Redemption is done. It's done at this point in time. It's complete. Redemption, which was made possible at the cross, will now be done. 
All the old things are gone. All the things associated with sin are gone. And all things are made new. And Jesus, who said, it is finished on the cross, will say, it is done at this point in time. It was made possible at the cross when he said it is finished. He paid the price. And now it's going to be done as redemption is fulfilled and completed in this new creation when all things are new. So what are the positives of living with God? What we're going to find is that there are three positives that he mentions here uh, in verses 6 and 7. And what they really do is fulfill our deepest needs. When you think about it, man has three major needs. He has a spiritual need, he has a physical need, and he has a social need. And when you analyze an individual, you'll find that those are my, th my three needs. I have a need spiritually, have a relationship with God. I have a need physically for things to care for me and, 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 and uh, provide for me, nourishment, so forth. I have a need socially to interact with other people. Those are the three needs of man. And God satisfies those right here. First spiritual, notice verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek language, or alphabet, and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the, origin, the, the originator and the consummator, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He's going to fulfill our spiritual need in that he is going to give us from the spring of the water of life. Whatever your thirst is, God's going to fulfill it. That's spiritual fulfillment. And Jesus talked about this water to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he said to her, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but it shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's exciting. Whenever you thirst, God's going to give you of the water of life out of the spring that he talks about. But this is interesting water because he gives you this water and then this water becomes in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's satisfaction. And that's fulfillment. And so whatever your thirst is spiritually, God's going to fulfill that. And then when he fulfills that, it's going to multiply and bring full satisfaction to our lives. And then I like it that he adds, without cost. He's going to give us without cost from the water of life. And I'm reminded of Isaiah 55.1 where it says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the water and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's free. Salvation is free. Eternal life is free. It's without cost. That's not cheap. Because it cost the Lord Jesus his life. But it's free to us because it's without cost as we come. And so spiritually... The Lord fulfills us completely. And then physically, notice verse 7. It says, He who overcomes shall inherit these things. Inherit what things? Look back at verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things. What are you going to inherit? All things. 
What are you going to need in eternity? Nothing. Because we will inherit all things. You will receive a full inheritance of all things. That's pretty exciting. You won't have any physical needs. You won't have any material needs. God is going to bless you with a full inheritance of all the new things that he has created. And then thirdly, we have a social need, and he satisfies that at the end of verse 7. It says, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I like that. That's personal, isn't it? God doesn't say, uh, I'm going to let you be part of this vast eternal throng. No, God says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my son. I don't know about you, but that's going to satisfy my social needs. God's going to interact with me personally. It's like I'm the only one. You're going to be my son, and we're going to have that kind of relationship, full fellowship with God. And so God is going to meet my spiritual need with the water of life, my physical need with all things, and my social need with himself. What more could you want? Full satisfaction, full inheritance, and full fellowship. And then he closes this section in which we discover the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem on a sober note as he reminds us of who will not be in the city. And that's verse 8. He says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, he doesn't say in this verse that anyone who has committed any of these sins won't be there because that would exclude us all. But he refers to these people as people whose lives are characterized by these things. He calls them murderers, liars. They are people for whom this is the course of their life. They haven't been transformed. They haven't been changed. This is the way they are. And he says, for all those people, their home will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. A sober reminder of the judgment of sin that man must bear if he doesn't accept the sacrifice of Christ. You know, there are two types of people mentioned in this section. There are these mentioned in verse 8, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral, immoral sorcerers, idolaters, liars, all these people who are controlled by and characterized by their sin. And then there's the person mentioned in verse 7, notice at the beginning, he who overcomes. There are these who have been overcome by their sin, and that characterizes their life. And then there's he who overcomes, and that's us. You say, well, how do we overcome? 1 John 5, 5 says, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who's the overcomer? He's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who has humbly repented and placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes us an overcomer. And the contrast in destinies is great. Those still overcome by sin will have their place in the lake of fire throughout eternity. And those who overcome by faith in Christ will spend eternity in the same town as God. That's exciting. And we will have full satisfaction, full inheritance, 
and full fellowship. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this reminder of what eternity is going to be like. Father, we thank you for your promise of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where you're going to dwell with us in a relationship that man has never known. And you're going to completely satisfy us in every way. Father, we thank you for that promise. And as we, as we talk about it, we recognize that it's something we don't deserve. And so our hearts give worship to the Lord Jesus as we think about what you have prepared for us. We thank you that it's without cost because the Lord Jesus paid the entire cost on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, we just pray that you might uh, remind us again today that this earth is, is one that's passing away and that we might set our hearts on things that are eternal and that we might make our treasure in heaven and that our heart might be there as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.